deal or no deal, the fate of two big pieces of legislation and perhaps the Biden presidency remain unclear. The pandemic takes a big bite out of economic growth and social media woes, this time it's TikTok, Snapchat and YouTube in the crosshairs on Capitol Hill. I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to West Wing Reports. It's Friday, October 22nd. President Biden is in Rome for meetings with leaders of the world's biggest economies, the so-called G20, though some biggies like China's Xi Jinping and Russia's Vladimir Putin are no-shows. They blame COVID. Then the president will move on to Scotland for a U.N. conference on climate change. We'll get into all that in a minute. But first, the president jetted away from Washington Thursday, and we're still not sure whether two giant pieces of legislation he's been fighting for months to pass are over the goal line yet. Here's a portion of what he said before leaving the White House. After months of tough and thoughtful negotiations, I think we have an historic, I know we have a historic economic framework. I think we have a deal, he said, before correcting himself. Was it another Biden slip of the tongue? Yes, it was. After all, there's still no deal. That's what Democrats say. And the president himself admitted privately, and I'm quoting, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that the House and Senate majorities and my presidency will be determined by what happens in the next week, unquote. So what's in this framework he's mentioning? One and three quarter trillion dollars in programs for everything from universal preschool for all three and four year olds to expanded Medicare for seniors. There's more than half a trillion dollars in tax credits for clean energy, including electric vehicles. And the cost of child care, a crushing expense for parents, will be capped at 7% of what they make. The hope there is that parents, mostly moms who have had to leave jobs to take care of the kids during the pandemic, will be able to re-enter the workforce. Those are the broad strokes to this. And again, as the president emphasized, no one is getting all they wanted, including him. More from his remarks Thursday. It's a framework that will create millions of jobs, grow the economy, invest in our nation and our people. Turn the climate crisis into an opportunity and put us on a path not only to compete, but to win the economic competition for the 21st century against China and every other major country in the world. It's fiscally responsible. It's fully paid for. 17 Nobel Prize winners in economics have said it will lower the inflationary pressures on the economy. And over the next 10 years, it will not add to the deficit at all. It will actually reduce the deficit, according to economists. I want to thank my colleagues in the Congress for their leadership. We spent hours and hours and hours over months and months working on this. No one got everything they wanted, including me. But that's what compromise is. That's consensus. And that's what I ran on. I've long said compromise and consensus are the only way to get big things done in a democracy important things done for the country. Some of the claims the president makes, like how this framework won't add to the deficit, are debatable, but it's a moot point now because as of this taping, there's still no deal. 
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. The economy downshifted in the third quarter, growth down to 2%. It had been well over 6% for the year. So what's going on? Well, consumer spending is two-thirds of the U.S. economy, and folks are spending less. Also, the pandemic aid that had been going out to millions of Americans, that's no more. The road ahead could be troubled. Inflation is heating up. Gasoline food are up, and the Energy Department warns it will cost more to stay warm this winter. What's worrying about this is that even before inflation picked up, the Federal Reserve said that nearly one-third of Americans would have trouble with an unexpected expense of $400. Now, times are even tighter. Some other quick items from this week. Housing prices remain solid, up nearly 20 percent in the top 20 markets nationwide from a year ago. That's according to the S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller Index. But there are signs that things may be leveling off. Hate crimes on the rise. The FBI says they rose 45 percent against blacks last year and 73% against Asians. And a different kind of crime, the white-collar variety, the Justice Department says it's stepping up the fight against it. In just a minute, TikTok, Snapchat, and YouTube have some explaining to do on Capitol Hill, and we'll take a closer look at the president's trip to Europe. But first, let's hear about another Evergreen podcast that I know you'll enjoy. Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. Welcome back. You're listening to West Wing Reports from Washington. I'm Paul Brandis. Three more social media companies are in the hot seat on Capitol Hill. TikTok, Snapchat, and YouTube, all wildly popular with younger Americans, including teens and kids even younger than that. The problem, how safe these platforms are, how much privacy kids have, and algorithms that may steer harmful content their way. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey. The problem is clear. Big tech preys on children and teens to make more money. Uh, Now is the time for the legislative solutions to these problems. And that starts with privacy. Uh, I've introduced bipartisan legislation to give children and teens a privacy bill of rights for the 21st century. Today, a 13-year-old girl uh, on these apps has no privacy rights. She has no ability to say no. No, you can't gobble up data about me. No, you can't use that data to power algorithms 
that push toxic content towards me. No, you can't profile me uh, to manipulate me and keep me glued to your apps. No, you have no rights. 13-year-old girl in the United States of America in the year 2021. There's a bill to better protect young social media users, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Markey asked two witnesses if their companies support that bill. The first is Jennifer Stout of Snapchat, followed by Michael Beckerman of TikTok. Senator Markey, um, I just want to say that we absolutely support a federal privacy proposal, and we've worked very hard with members of this body to try to... Do you support my child protection, my teen protection law? Do you support it? So, Senator, we agree that there should be additional protections put against young people to protect them further from... Right. So you've had a chance to look at the child online privacy protection update that I've introduced. It's been out there for years. Do you support it or not? I think, Senator, we'd love to talk to you a bit more about no, no. some of the uh, we've issues. Been talk- Listen, this is, this is just what drives us crazy. We want to talk. We want to talk. We want to talk. This bill's been out there for years, and you still don't have a view on it. Do you support it or not? I think there are things that we would like to work with you on, Senator. Listen, this, this is just the old game. Uh, Mr. Beckerman, do you support the Child Online Privacy Protection Act being updated uh, the way my legislation does? Senator, one, uh, thank you for your leadership on this issue. It's been very important. Yes, we agree that COPPA needs to be updated, particularly as it relates to um, the way air, age verification happens across the Internet. It's an area that I think um, has been um, not given as much attention as it deserves, that we, we do agree that COPPA do, does need to be updated. Do you support my legislation to update it? You've had plenty of time to look at it. I, uh, we, I, we like your approach. However, I think a piece that um, should be included is a better way to verify age across the Internet, across apps, rather than the system that is in place now. And I think with that improvement, it, um, it would be something that we'd be happy to support. Meantime, Beckerman, he's the TikTok guy, had this exchange with Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. Um, recent investigation by the Wall Street Journal found that TikTok's algorithm can push young users into content glorifying eating disorders, drug violence. Have you stopped that? Um, yes, Senator. Um, I don't agree with the way the Wall Street Journal went about that. But with that said, we have made a number of improvements to um, the way people can have control over the algorithm and have age-appropriate content on TikTok. Okay. Um, and what are those changes? Like, is, are they still getting, are they they're completely protected now from this content? Senator, um, the um, content related to drugs, as you're, as you're pointing out, um, it violates our community guidelines. Um, as it relates to minor safety, ni- over 97% of violative content is removed proactively. Of course, we want to get to 100%, and it's something that we're constantly working on. Did you, are you aware of any research studies your company has conducted about how your apps may push content promoting eating disorders to teens? No, Senator. So a lot of talk, but not enough action to protect kids, at least in the eyes of lawmakers. Well, President Biden is out of the country, his second foreign trip since taking office. First stop, Rome, where this Catholic president will meet with the Pope and participate in the G20 summit. Then it's off to Scotland for a United Nations Climate Summit, a very big deal for the president. My guest is Jonathan Broder of Newsweek. He's covered defense and foreign policy issues for more than two decades, including postings in the Middle East, 
China and elsewhere, the recipient of numerous awards for his work. You know, before talking specifics of the G20 and the climate summit, the president has been in office for almost a year now, about uh, what, nine, 10 months or so. It's not too uh, early to begin making uh, impressions about how he's doing. In your view, how is he doing on the world stage after nine or 10 months? Well, um, there were um, great expectations uh, for for Biden, particularly since he came to office um, uh, in the wake of uh, Donald Trump's presidency. And as we all remember, Trump was enormously disruptive when it came to uh, foreign policy. He um, threatened to uh, to leave NATO. He uh, castigated members of NATO for not uh, paying enough money. Um, uh, he had terrible relations with Angela Merkel of, of Germany. Um, he had bad relations with just about all of our allies, uh, but had good relations with, uh, with uh, dictators like Putin. Biden uh, came to office and uh, pledged to uh, bring America back was his, um, his, his mantra. The problem is that some of his biggest uh, goals in foreign policy, uh, he hasn't yet accomplished. One was to bring the United States back into the uh, Iran uh, nuclear deal, which Trump had pulled out of uh, back in uh, 2018. The talks that uh, have been going on in Vienna, there's been six sessions so far, interrupted by uh, an election in Iran, which brought a more hardline president uh, into power. The Iranians have just recently, um, I think yesterday, uh, announced that uh, they will resume at the end, sometime before the end of November. The problem here is that uh, it's not clear whether the United States will even attend uh, these talks now. The issue before was um, the uh, hard line that the Iranians were taking. Um, but the one demand that the Iranians are making is that the United States provide an ironclad guarantee that whatever agreement that they reach, if they come back to the, uh, the uh, Iran nuclear accord, that the next administration, uh, if it's a Republican administration, won't pull out of it and withdraw from it again in the same way that, that Trump did. Uh, the problem for the administration, for Biden, is that he cannot give that guarantee because this is not a treaty that obligates the United States. It's an executive agreement, meaning it is reached by the president, which means that the next president can withdraw from it. So uh, that kind of guarantee that the uh, Iranians are insisting upon, Biden cannot give them. Another area um, is uh, in relations with China. Uh, as we all remember, Trump uh, imposed uh, tariffs on China in an attempt to rectify the trade imbalance between the two countries. Biden wanted to uh, improve relations with China, but since he's been in, in office, those uh, tariffs have remained. So uh, relations between the United States and China, if anything, have gotten worse since Trump uh, has left office. They were bad under Trump, but they have not improved, but have actually gone backwards under, under Biden. Now, on that, uh, you just mentioned something that was uh, very interesting about uh, the Iranians. 
looking for some guarantees here. That's a really interesting uh, point. You know, so far, Biden has said, I think, trying to reassure our NATO allies that America is back. That's a phrase I think we've heard him use a couple of times. I am not sure, and tell me what you think, I'm not sure that they are uh, completely assured by this for the reason that you mentioned. There are worries that Trump could return in three years. So I have the sense that they are hedging against the possibility of a Trump comeback. Uh, that's exactly right. Um, uh, also, you have to remember that uh, NATO countries are all democracies. So they also have to pay attention to what their publics feel. Um, and there were some very interesting polls that were taken. Uh, um, one was in uh, June, um, where the, um, the, they were, the public was questioned on the willingness, uh, their willing, the public's willingness to uh, join a uh, US-led NATO alliance uh, to contain China now that the war in Afghanistan is officially over and ended in a, uh, a very uh, chaotic manner, that in itself raised questions among allies uh, just about how dependable the United States is a, as an ally. On the issue of China, the polls showed that publics in, uh, of these NATO countries don't want to uh, join this alliance. They want to stay neutral when it comes to China. And uh, when asked in this poll, uh, they uh, believe that within a decade or so, China is going to surpass the United States uh, as the most powerful country in the world, and they want to hedge their bets. So it's not quite clear that uh, NATO is totally behind the United States in what it wants to accomplish right now. All right. Well, moving on, uh, this uh, G20 summit in Rome that uh, the president will attend. Uh, what is your sense of that? And I think you already gave us sort of an answer. Uh, a lot of the European countries are hedging their bets. One big reason for that is there's this perception of a secular American decline combined with uh, China's uh, rise and so forth. A lot of these countries, Germany, for example, huge trade partner with uh, China, uh, on and on and on. So it makes sense that uh, if uh, Western, uh, for Western allies in Europe are hedging, well, other G20 countries are going to hedge as well. With that in mind, what does the president hope to achieve at this G20 summit? Well, NATO is a very, very important component of this G20 summit. You know, NATO was formed uh, as a collective defense against the Soviet Union, and now views itself also as the collective defense against uh, Russia encroachment uh, on uh, some of the former Soviet republics. They know that the United States wants G20 countries and the NATO members within the G20 countries to be part of this alliance to contain Russia. But as I mentioned earlier, they also, Biden also wants them to join this alliance to contain China. So that means that they have, have responsibilities to contain both Russia and China. And as I mentioned earlier, they are not really on board with the China side of this. It's interesting that the NATO allies are hedging, but countries that are much closer to China, South Korea, Japan, and uh, most recently uh, Australia with the submarine deal, the countries that are actually 
closest to China seem more willing to uh, get involved uh, more closely with the U.S. Uh, when it comes to China. Interesting uh, distinction, perhaps. Yes. Uh, like uh, You mentioned um, there's a deal now between the United States, Britain, and Australia to provide Australia with the technology for nuclear-powered uh, submarines. And uh, this uh, is actually quite a very significant agreement. Uh, what, it, what it shows is that uh, Australia, which is, uh, China is Australia's largest trading partner. And Australia uh, up until recently has been very, very careful not to offend China. But as a result of the COVID uh, epidemic and a Australian request for the WHO, the World Health Organization, to determine the, um, the source of the, of the COVID pandemic, uh, China took great offense at this and has been um, levying uh, trade sanctions against uh, Australia. And this has been going on for a year now. Um, and Australia has now basically decided to throw in its lot with the United States in trying to contain China uh, within the Pacific. So that's a, um, a strategic advantage that, uh, the, or, or a, a force multiplier that the United States brings to its confrontation with China in the Western Pacific. So again, the difference is that uh, the closer you are to China, the more willing you are to place your bet with the United States as opposed to Western Europe, which is which seems more interested in hedging. Exactly. And, you know, it just goes to prove that the old adage that geography matters. You know, one of the reasons that uh, Biden cited for the pullout from Afghanistan was that it was a high time for the United States to focus on its biggest geopolitical rival and competitor, and that is China. Uh, and to shift its resources over to the to the Pacific. Now on to uh, Scotland, this uh, UN climate summit. Uh, you know, just before the president left on Thursday, he came into the East Room and said, "Well, we have what he called a framework agreement for uh, the social spending bill that will include a lot of climate related." things, more renewable energy, more charging stations for electric cars and all the rest. It is not a done deal, but he's kind of spinning it as well. It's almost a done deal. And I guess the question is, Jonathan, he has spoken of climate change in almost uh, apocalyptic terms. Time is running out. The temperatures are rising. The seas are rising. We've got to move quickly. As he goes to Glasgow for this uh, summit, are we doing enough and are others doing enough? You mentioned China. China, obviously, in absolute terms, is now the world's biggest polluter. Uh, are we and uh, is everyone else doing enough? Well, uh, let's start with the United States. Um, as you mentioned, um, uh, Biden may be spinning this thing as uh, a framework and almost a done deal, but it's not a done deal until it's a done deal. And there are still a couple of uh, Democratic senators who are opposed. So for example, Joe Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, which is a big coal state. There was an element in this uh, original bill that uh, included um, a, a lot of money to uh, take utilities off of coal and natural gas and put it toward a renewable 
uh, energy sources like wind, solar, uh, hydro, and so forth. Manchin, because his state is a coal state, was adamantly opposed to this. And because the Senate is evenly divided, Trump, uh, um, Biden needs every vote he can get. Uh, so without um, Manchin, um, he can't pass this. So that element, um, or at least a very large uh, part of that uh, element wa was stripped out of the bill already. The climate or environmental uh, portion of uh, social spending bill uh, would include $550 billion for renewables, or, and that's largely in the form of tax incentives for utilities to use renewables. That would be the largest federal spending on efforts to, to combat climate change. And it would allow Biden to go to Glasgow with that as evidence of his uh, administration's commitment to, to fight climate change. All right, we'll have to leave it right there. Jonathan Broder of Newsweek, thank you. Jonathan has covered defense and foreign policy issues for more than two decades, including postings in the Middle East and China and elsewhere, the recipient of all kinds of awards for his work. Jonathan, as always, just to really enjoy the chat and hope to have you on again soon. Pleasure to be here. Now let's open up the West Wing Report's archives and take a look at what else made history this week in the past. He was known as the Atlas of Independence, John Adams, born this day in 1735. He was the second president, but the first to live in the White House. Want to read a good book on Adams? At the top of the list is the biography by David McCullough. It's called simply John Adams. Theodore Roosevelt, born this week in 1858, he was the youngest president ever, though the youngest ever elected was JFK. A C-SPAN survey of historians, that included me, I'm proud to say, ranks Roosevelt the fifth greatest president. He's just one of four on Mount Rushmore, by the way. And speaking of Mount Rushmore, it opened this week in 1941. And 2001, George W. Bush signed the Patriot Act, a series of measures aimed at preventing future terror attacks on the United States. The government was given broad new powers to monitor things like communications and financial transactions. There have been several legal challenges since 2001 to the Patriot Act. Federal courts have ruled that some are unconstitutional. Civil rights supporters have said the provisions trample upon the individual liberties of American citizens. I like to end each week with a quote, something you might find thoughtful. This week, it's from James Monroe, our fifth president. He said something that I think resonates today, quote, it is only when the people become ignorant and corrupt when they degenerate into a populace that they are incapable of exercising their sovereignty. Think about it. And that's all for this week. Here's my email, pbrandis at evergreenpodcasts.com. That's P-B-R-A-N-D-U-S, pbrandis at evergreenpodcasts.com. I try my best to answer all emails. All I ask is that you keep it civil. Please include your full name and town also, and thank you. 
West Wing Reports is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to C-SPAN for the audio clips. Our producer, sound designer, and engineer, Noah Fouts. Executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.